You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. I'm going to sneeze. I just started recording and it's going to sneeze. We're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> oh my God, that was tight. Leave reuse as we say in Hebrew. That was really good. Nice work. All right, we're live. Hello. How's it going? Doing, Ralph? Oh man, doing with you. Not much, just getting back from vacation. Glad to be podcasting again. Got a couple weeks off that were good, and then a week of being sick, which was not so good. But yeah, huh? I, if it, it was, you, you turned out positive or negative, or what was it? You're, yeah. you're positive, or I went and did the COVID test. Apparently, just in oh. case you're listening and you don't know this, which I didn't know, when you do the COVID test, um, I did a self test at a at a drive up, and they hand you the. Uh, oh, there's self service. There's like self service when you yeah uh-huh. you do it like yeah it's self checkout. Yeah, but they don't pay you for doing their job. Um, but just in <laughs> case, just in case you're misinformed like I was, you do not put the Q-tip in your butt. That's not oh, how is you that test. True? Yeah. What? So, and if you do that first, take my word for it. If you do that first, they will not give you a second Q-tip to then insert in your nose to actually do the test properly. You have been disqualified for self-service. Is that what they say? <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. You're you not, just, uh, we don't trust you. You just got to use the rectal Q-tip in your sinuses. Oh, oh, I thought it was, I thought they, I thought they demoted you. No, they say, okay, now you got to use it the real way. Is that what they say? That, that's oh, what wow. they did. That's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't know. They, I drove up, they said, unroll your window. They handed me a Q-tip. They said, take a swab and hand it back. I took a swab and they said, not like that, sir. How am I supposed you to? Learn, you're, you're the you expert learn. in the PPP. <laughs> I am just driving up with the sniffles. I, how am I expected to be the one to know where to put this swab when you hand it to me? Anyway. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I just want to say I'm glad, I'm glad you're okay. At least that. I am still recovering. That, that, they, I did have to put that Q-tip up pretty far. I'm pretty sure I scraped some brain matter off. Um, oh, I didn't, know which, I didn't know which one you were talking about at that moment. I got a little nervous. Oh, that's the rectal way. Yeah, it went so far and <laughs> I, I got to my, my brain matter. Hey-o! <laughs> oh, and it was, I mean, to be honest, I'm going to go again next week because... Uh, Just for that, fun? It was that good. Oh, wow. I think that joke so alone it, was worth it. Was worth it. We have in this in this uh, neighborhood. They actually have people. They're asking people to get tested because they want to bring the numbers down. Do you know what I mean by that? Like they want more people in the denominator and the numerator. You know, so they get everybody. They say everybody can just go get tested now. You don't have to. If you start the process, it used to be that if you started the process, you had to go into quarantine until you got the results. Right now, they right. want people to get tested, and they're like, just go get tested, and. You know, you can just go in and say, I'm just doing it to be safe and to you know, make sure everybody's healthy and safe. And they'll, you know, you can get tested just like that. Boom. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's an interesting sort of public health is just so bizarre that that um, 
that that you know everybody has a different opinion about um, why the tests or why the results are going up, why deaths are going up. Uh, you know, people, public officials are claiming that it's because there's more tests, and it, the answer is yes. You you'll get a greater rate if pe more people are testing, um, but you'll also be able to understand. Not a greater rate, you'll get a greater, what's it called? You'll get a, a, a larger number, but the rate itself might change, right? The number of people who are positive versus the number of people who are tested. Because like yesterday here, they gave, we got like the numbers were very, you know, not bad. Like I think there were like 400 positive cases yesterday, but the rate was 2.8, which was higher than it's been. So of the people who were tested, more people came back positive than have in the last, which is that's when we start to get nervous and everybody starts to say that we got to watch out and we're going to, you know, the numbers are going to go up again. Well, and it's a great segue to what we wanted to talk about because the reports that come out are often from a president or a governor, uh, right. at least here in America. And um, my inclination historically has been to trust those folks. However, when you get contra contradicting reports and you get medical officials who are saying, well, that's true to an extent, or, you know, this person's taking the facts in a way that, uh, right, to, you know, right. to support their agenda or something, it just, it, it causes me to wonder, like, why, why aren't they deferring the podium to a public right. health official of some sort? Right. And There's definitely something to, yeah, go ahead. What is the responsibility of a appointed leader? Uh, mm -hmm. to speak on these things. You know, what's the burden that we bear in leadership to, um, to speak the truth and, and uh, to defer to other experts versus try and pretend we're the expert on something or give the information? Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that bears heavy on, on both of us, uh, how much we True. need to say as religious leaders. But right now, you know, the, um, the watering down of truth uh, really puts our position at a heightened exposure for attack if we say, hey, it's okay to go have Thanksgiving with your family. People will go, well, you're just a pastor. But people are asking for more leadership, uh, more definitive answers, more direction. Um, you know, what, do you, uh, what, what have you found on that? Um, I think... I'll tell you what I found in the, in the initial stages of what we went through here in Israel. Um, we actually didn't have a government, believe it or not. Say what? We, uh, yeah. To believe it or not, our government had gone through previous to the coronavirus outbreak. We had had one election, which was stalemated. And I think we were like just done our second election or something. I, I believe me, I'm not, I didn't go back over the history of this to, to talk about, but we had not yet had another government form. And we, we have a very weird system. Our system, um, it's not like in America where you vote and whoever gets the largest numbers is then the government, that's the government. You know what I mean? Like take it or leave it. What they have to do is since it's a parliamentary system, I believe it's a parliamentary system or based on the British system. It sounds have, like you're getting off topic. Let's just, let's just parties. say... Let's just say in Sorry. Israel, it's like the Hunger Games. <laughs> what were those people who were uh, tributes from the district? What were they saying about this whole thing? So this, but this is the interesting thing. Last thing I'll say, I won't go into too many more details, but basically this, we only had a, a, a prime minister. That's all we had functioning when the coronavirus right. outbreak happened. So he... Bibi Netanyahu, as we call him, Benjamin Netanyahu, was basically in charge of everything. And we got like constant, almost weekly 
updates from him. And he would to the, you know, we'd go on a news conference and he would say, okay, this is where we are. This is where the numbers are. And the leadership actually, I think we all felt like we were really taking care of at that point. We felt like we were in good hands. Like he was an established leader. He's been the prime minister for a long time. And I felt like he took good care of us. Then when the government finally got set up, things went downhill from there. Like when you have that many people trying to make decisions for everyone, sometimes it gets muddled. And I think he tried to, he tried to sort of back off and say, I don't want full responsibility for this. So things got, things got out of control. And then you have the religious parties and everybody's trying to say, oh, I want to do this and we need to have the synagogues open. And it got a mess. Um, but I definitely, I think that deci- being decisive as a leader, I think that was one of the key things that was led us off good place. Our first wave's peak was only as high as our daily numbers are right now. So basically, daily cases right now, and that was as high as we got in the first peak. And then just before in our second wave, we got up to 11,000. I think the leadership, the leadership, well, it's an interesting, I have a question for you, Ref. What, what, how do you feel that you came into your leadership role, right? We talked a little bit about your journey, but I want to, I want to steal a, one of the, the more famous rabbis in our community. Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi of England for a long time. And he just two weeks ago passed. Not, it was his third cancer. And uh, he quoted in one of his speeches, he quoted Shakespeare. He quoted from the Twelfth Night and said, Some people are born great, some achieve grace, but some have greatness upon them. So, how, how, how did I become? How do you feel you found your. Yeah, did you feel like you were born great? Did you feel you achieved greatness, or did you feel like you had greatness thrust upon you? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, uh, my therapist always hears me say, I, I definitely wasn't born great. <laughs> uh, I totally thought you were going to go the other way. My therapist keeps telling me I wasn't born great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she, she was, she tells me I wasn't born great. Um, I don't know. So did I achieve it or was it thrust upon me? So in some ways, so in, in our denomination, the Lutheran church, uh, of all the Catholic Protestant, uh, I mean, not Catholic, Christian Protestant uh, denominations, um, there is a formal process in order to become a Lutheran pastor. And it's pretty rigorous. There's, a, you know, there's three years of education, one year of internship. Um, along the way, there is a body that is charged with um, every year, basically every year, making sure that you've met the guidelines and requirements necessary, and you're checking all the boxes on proper theology and lifestyle and um, all that kind of stuff. So there is, an, there is an essence even just becoming ordained, right? Ordained, what we say is a, a falling of the Holy Spirit, confirming you're, you're a pastor in the Lutheran church. But really, it's a, it's a set of greatness being thrust upon you. You know, people saying, asking you questions and testing you. And, um, you know, we, <laughs> the final, uh, it's called approval, the final interview. It's 20 people sitting in a circle staring at you while you answer some super formal factual questions. 
some wow. theological perspective and some lifestyle practice questions. It's like whole, it's like a religious dissertation, is what you're saying, or you a firing squad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it very, and at the end of it, you know, they celebrate. I, I was approved. Um, they celebrate you, and they really say you're ordained. Welcome to the, you know, welcome to the club. And then also to become a congregational pastor, there's a whole nother set. You know, it's it's like a standard job interview with everything. Um, but then the entire church has to vote to approve, they call it calling, but it's hiring you as their pastor. So at our church, there were 700 plus people at a meeting who heard all about me and um, had the opportunity to hear people who interviewed me and even go online and hear me preach um, and who said, yay or nay, should he be the pastor? And I say all that because um, you know, we're, we're, we're really charged, you know, it's not like I was born, like a king is born into it because their father was the king when they were born. Um, you can't do that and become a Lutheran pastor. You have to go through a real lot of checks and balances and um, tests. Um, I don't know, you know, I think the, um, the definition of greatness sort of, uh, becomes uh, subjective at, at this point. You know, whether whether I'm great at what I do or not is up to how you're measuring it. Um, I think one of the biggest burdens that I've found in leading as a pastor is people expect us to be excellent at everything uh, when really, just like any other job, we're, um, you know, we're, we're, we're good at some things, we're great at some things, and some things we just need to tell ask other people to do. Um, there was this... Um, survey I think the Barna group did years ago about uh, various professions and how many of these 100 skill sets do you expect this professional to be uh, excellent at and so they would say they had 100 um, characteristics listed things like um, communication um, executive skills uh, personnel HR um, ran the gamut of job skills and so then they'd list a profession, like a doctor. And they would say, how many of these do you expect your doctor to be excellent at? Um, I don't remember the specific mm -hmm. facts, but I remember that pastors were at the, the highest end by 30-something skill sets, meaning we have the most, it was in the 80s, I think, like people expect pastors to be excellent at 80-something of those 100 skill sets, and they expect the, wow. the next tier, doctors, lawyers, I think it was, um, somewhere in the 50 range. And so the expectations wow. are just monumental for us um, in ways that are unrealistic in, you know, sort of characteristic sure. of, the, of, uh, of the Superman comics where everyone expects him to be perfect all the time. And then we see him, you know, falling apart and becoming the dark Superman in a couple of, uh, couple of the uh, right, right, right. comics. What about you? How did, how did, how did leadership take, take hold in your profession? The truth is, in my profession, um, I feel like that's something that's really, well, let's put it this way. In the, in the school that I studied, we didn't focus as much on the leadership and the pastoral side of things. We were much more focused on um, knowing a, a certain set of uh, base knowledge, right? You had to know a good amount of things. And that's because there's sort of two... 
ideas of what a rabbi should be. One idea of the rabbi is sort of what you're talking about, the congregational rabbi, the person who's up in that high percentile, who's able to do lots of different things, who's able to relate to people on a very high level, um, taking leadership roles. And then there's this idea of a rabbi where the rabbi is the person who just answers questions about Jewish law, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the, question, the question sort of could be, I mean, in my mind is, where do those two things meet? Do they meet, right? But, but more importantly, my, my study is sort of centered, as I said, on that knowledge base. Um, I still felt this sort of drive to be involved in, in leadership uh, things. And I think it actually, I think that started way back in, maybe even in high school. Um, so I, I think I'm sort of in your camp where I, where the greatness was maybe more thrust upon me or maybe achieved, you know, somewhere in between those two. I'm not sure which one, you know, it, it more was. But when we were actually, you know, at Alma Mater at the University of Rhode Island, there was a moment where, um, I don't know if you remember the president of the student body, they, they, just, they were threatening to uh, fire him. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember yeah. this whole deal? Yeah. And the, and the student body sort of got whipped into a frenzy and decided to uh, come to his defense, so to speak. Um, and there was a, uh, the, the president of the student body at that time was, I think you knew, did you know Joe Walsh? Did you know him yep. when we were in school? So Joe was, you know, sort of spearheading the entire effort. And I sort of, I think he pulled me into the effort and I was sort of going, I don't know if I'm the person, you know, for this job. I didn't feel like I was, you know, worthy to be sort of spearheading the effort, but I was certainly willing to help. Um, and I remember it was sort of a formative thing for me because I, I, had to, I had to come to terms with, I think leadership involves a sort of reckoning of your own co- um, confidence level, at least at some base level, right? Where you have to sort of get to a point where you're not doing this out of some sort of ego, right? You're not doing this because you feel that, you know, you want to be in the spotlight, but at the same time, you don't feel that you're not worthy for it. And at that point, when I was in college, I sort of wasn't sure if I was worthy of it. Um, and what happened was, this was actually really, was an interesting moment where we were being interviewed by somebody who was on the local news about why we thought the president should keep his job. And um, got this, uh, this newscaster is interviewing me. It was only one of the first, it was definitely the first time I was ever on television. So I was nervous as all can be, right? And, the, and he says to me, why do you think the president, you know, should keep his job when the board, I think it was the board, whoever it was, was saying, you know, he's got to go. And I said, you know, well, we, we think he's good at his job. And he goes, well, there are people who think he's not doing his job well, and that's why he should be fired. And I was like, well, <laughs> we don't agree I with know that. you are, but what am I? <laughs> it was like one of those big moments of like, oh, yeah, well, thanks. Buddy. Like I, he completely put me out. You know what I mean? And, and, he, and look, that's the job of, a, of an, I guess, of a newscaster to do, you know, to ask the hard questions, quote unquote. Right. But it really was that moment where I said, why am I doing this? Like, why am I, you know, stepping up to the plate with this? But I think what, what really came to mind was, uh, at, you know, in subsequent thinking about this, thinking about these things afterwards was, um, one of my teachers taught uh, advocacy and she talked about, she quoted Dr. Dr. King saying, if you don't have something worth dying for, then you're not really living. And that was the moment where I started coming to grips with, wait a minute, I really care about Judaism. I care about the future of the Jewish people. 
And I want to throw my hat into that. Like that's really important to me. So it's not about me, right? It's not about, I want to be in the spotlight or I want to be the person at the front and center stage. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. really about, I care about my people and I care about their well-being. Um, and, and I think that also f- sort of translated into why I live in Israel as well, because as you know, I live in Jerusalem. Um, that, that became a real thing for me because every day I felt like I care so much about the future of the Jewish people. And I do believe in some ways, this is the future of the Jewish people is here. You know? yeah. There's definitely many amazing things being done outside of Israel as well, but, but the, the state of Israel and its well-being and its existence is so important that I felt like every day when I live here, I'm actually like doing living that that quote from Dr. King. I'm actually living something that I'd be willing to die for, which God forbid anyone should ever have to die for the things they care about. But it's that that level of commitment. Yeah, but isn't it amazing the amount of either ego or naivete that has to go into saying that like I'm the one to speak on behalf of these people, right? Like, I think there's, you know, if you stand outside yourself, you know, every leader is just a, a person, you know, none of us are yeah. any, any better or worse inherently. Um, there's a lot of, you know, opportunity and um, education and skills that have to go into becoming a leader. But at the end of the day, we're all just people. And so, I, you know, I, I often wrestle with, well, who am I to, to talk about these things? And then, sure. you know, you get the pushback of who are you not, you know, um, who else is going to, if not you, then who, you know, somebody, not everybody has the, um, the enthusiasm, the passion, the voice, the courage to speak. And even some people who are called to lead uh, are called before they even have some of those skills. You know, what we often say is God doesn't uh, call the equipped. God equips the called, meaning that you're Mm -hmm. called to lead And if you're honestly, you know, searching for how to do this best and and asking for honest opinions, even if they're um, different than yours, then you're being equipped to do a better job as a leader than if you go, well, I need to be perfect and then uh, and then I can lead. And I think that's the I mean, that's the beauty of um, of of what I call humble servants in the world. Uh, People like Bishop Desmond Tutu, uh, who, you know, serve because. They felt like they were they needed to, and there was an uprising of people who wanted them to. It wasn't because they thought, well, I've got the most money, the most power, the best decisions. Uh, it was that people needed them to so badly that they had no other opportunity, than, uh, no other choice than to, than to actually lead. We had talked a bit about um, comedians shortly after the election and how comedians um, you know, should or should not speak on uh, on the election and their political opinions. Tell us more what, what you were thinking about that. Oh, I, I think it, in that regard, if, if comedians are doing what they're supposed to be doing, right, they're really shining a light onto uh, society. They, if they're really doing the right thing, they're actually, they're, their critique is, um, in a way, it's supposed to make you laugh. It's supposed to make you, but really it's supposed to make you think. Right. And so what what I was sort of relating to was I felt like a couple different uh, comedians got up on uh, uh, Saturday Night Live, you know, two of the hosts. And mm-hmm. they said, in my mind, they said what what needed to be said at that moment. And what, what happens is, is when you say things that need to be said, like a, a good example was John Mulaney, who I think, again, is the most parv, apolitical, you know, 
person I can imagine. He, he doesn't even delve into politics. It's just like the complete antithesis of say like a Dennis Miller or a, you know, um, though he's just not that type of person, but he said what was, you know, like the joke of the moment, right? He talked about politics slightly and, and just for that one moment, immediately people were on him and were giving him a hard time about it. And, and I, and I always think that, um, even when it comes to comedy, even when it comes to spiritual leadership, um, one of my teachers ta- always told a story. Um, his name is uh, Rav Avi Weiss. And he was, I mean, he was one of the, and still is one of the most influential leaders in the Jewish community. Did a lot of work to, to save uh, Jews in the former Soviet Union. And when he was leaving his first pulpit, is one of his stories he likes to tell all the time. When he was leaving his first pulpit to, to move to, back to New York to, like a large, to, to build a pulpit that he still works with now, um, they had a sort of going away ceremony for him. Mm-hmm. And when they did it, uh, the president of the synagogue, who he said he was extremely close with, gave him a toast and said, I wish you lots of enemies. <laughs> and he went like, this is like one of my closest friends. Why would he say something like that? So everything sort of settles down afterwards. And he walks up and says, why would, you, why would you wish me lots of enemies? He says, if you don't have enemies, then you didn't do anything in this world. And you're supposed to do something in this world. Yeah. And I'll tell you, he lived up to that, to that, to that toast. He has lots of enemies. Um, and, and that's the hardest thing. The hardest thing is not only that leadership is something that you sort of have to, like I said, take, reckon with and decide that you're going to do even when you said so wisely that it's, you know, you're, you might not be equipped, right? You have to make that decision. And when you do, you have to know, number one, in the beginning of my leadership, most people are not going to follow. You have right. to start alone, have right? And it. once yeah. you, right, you have to earn it. And then once you earn it, it's still, you're going to have a whole segment of the population that thinks that you're wrong. Sure. Because people don't like change. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think, it's funny to hear uh, one of the, one of the things people often say that I, that I laugh at is when they hear, you know, a comedian make a political statement or a, um, an athlete make a, uh, a political statement or a statement about justice. They say, do your job. You're just supposed to, you know, we just pay you to play sports or to tell jokes. <laughs> uh, and you kind of go, yeah, but the, you're no more equipped to make political statements than that comedian is, you know? So it's Correct. the same people who are spouting stuff up on, on Facebook about their political beliefs or their personal opinions. Um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, they don't have poli-sci degrees, I'm guessing, that they're using to make right, these statements. Right, right. And yet they're <laughs> saying, you know, because you, you know, it, 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 it'd be like the, uh, like the football player saying, well, you're an engineer. You shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be making comments about <laughs> politics either but really right. all of us have you know some sort of uh, a weight of a uh, burden to bear of you know how much or how little do we speak out on uh, as leaders it sounds like a lot of this is wrapped sure. up in in um you know tough topics and things that are challenging and difficult how do you decide um what you publicly make comments about or what you publicly take a stance on do you have like a, a a method you go through or people you work with? So I'm, I feel extremely blessed that I do not have a congregation because I don't ever have to think about <laughs> I envy what I'm saying. Yeah. 
I don't ever have to think after about this what podcast, I may be in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. But I, I, I sit here and I, and I, and I, and when I, I feel like when I, I have to say something is usually, and when I sort of whittle things down, I say, you know what? I, I, I can't. I can't, either I can't not say something or there's somebody who is on the other side of this that is in much dire need of mm-hmm. assistance than, than I am. And I feel like they're, they're sort of out alone. Like I'll give you an example. When I was, um, I think it was about two years ago, um, I had been doing uh, circumcisions for quite some time and I ended up having, uh, starting to have about a handful of circumcisions for same-sex couples. A um, handful of circumcisions. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, That's good I, stuff right there. The, the fun part is they come out naturally these days. That was not intended. So, <laughs> so, the, so um, but I had, I had like, I don't know, three, five, you know, whatever. I had, I had had a couple. Um, and I read a, an article where a guy was, where whoever was writing it and whoever he was, just started spouting things off about how, um, people who are part of the LGBTQ community don't care about tradition and they don't care about being connected to Jewish tradition. They're just trying to buck everything. And I, and I just felt like, you got to be kidding me. And I, and I wrote a thing, because um, every now and again, I do write, you know, this is sort of my platform to get my out. I don't have, I don't have sermons to give on a regular basis. So I'll write something and try mm-hmm. to publish it in different places. And I wrote something and I said, listen, you know, um, you are basing what you're saying uh, on on nothing. I mean, I've worked with these with these couples as of you know for a few years now, um, and if anything, they're striving to be part of what we're doing. They're striving to have something traditional when they have a, a baby, and they want to have the the as normal or as regular a a circumcision as anybody else does. And 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 I actually had worked to try to change some of the language of the of the ceremony that we do to be more fitting for people because the language wasn't exactly you know fitting for people who were of same sex uh, couples and I and so and I was the one who was initiating the changes not the people who were coming to me for for my sort of leadership and counsel I felt like it needed to be changed for them and you know I got into a whole brawl with another rabbi who is very anti any of these things. And, and what I had written, my whole thesis was, we just need to be welcoming to people. Like we need to welcome everyone into the tent. And then, and when they're in the tent, they're going to figure out their own path. It might not be the way that I do it. It might not be part of the, you know, the traditional camp. It might be the more liberal camp, but we need to welcome everyone in and be as welcoming as we can. And this person said, how dare you? And I said, and, and I basically wrote back, so you're saying we shouldn't be welcoming? That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the sticking real, point. That's for a tough you. one to push. <laughs> I said you might, you might. <laughs> but, but in the sense, when those things happen, when I see those sort of needs, I say, you know, I, I, I can't just be silent, you know, and I've got to, I've got to put my voice out there. How do you, how do you? You know, it's tough. Uh, the need that you couldn't keep your mouth shut. Yeah, it, it, you know, I think there's a lot that goes into uh, our formal uh, call and charge as a pastor and as a Christian. Um, there are, I, I'm often pretty removed from utilizing my, my public podium to, you know, to make any um, really controversial statements or stances. I prefer to get into in a conversation for a long period of time with both you know, or many different differing opinions on 
matters. Um, and after that conversation, a lot of times there isn't a need to make a public statement because I'm much more connected with the, the nuances of both, both sides of the party. Um, sure. You know, there's, there's one instance in particular where as pastors, we are charged, we are, we are ordered um, through our call by the Holy Spirit to speak out uh, on behalf of the oppressed uh, and the, the beaten, the downtrodden. Um, and so a lot of times, regardless of my personal opinion about why something happened, if there are forces of power in power who are oppressing those who are not with power or people who have a voice, who are putting people down, who don't have a voice, uh, in the conversation, we're, we're forced to, we have to speak out on behalf of them. Now, that means a number of different things. You know, I speaking out, they don't say you have to post it on Facebook or you have to preach on a Sunday morning for 20 minutes on this. Speaking out mm -hmm. just means, you know, utilizing the weight of our leadership um, uh, on behalf of those who are on the, the, the lesser side or the losing side of the mm -hmm. battle. Um, one particular instance was back in June. Um, you may remember the, you know, there was a peaceful protest um, outside the, uh, between the White House and an Episcopal church. And uh, oh, yeah. President Trump wanted to make a public statement at this church. And he sent, he used federal troops to um, clear a path of peaceful protesters. Um, we don't know whether the protesters fought back or not. That's not factual. And I don't know. But we do know right. that, you know, federal troops did get violent um, with formerly peaceful protesters in order for the for, in order for the president to um, get to making this public statement, which it turned out wasn't sure. a really deal-breaking, huge monumental um, decision. And so um, our national bishop, Bishop Elizabeth Eaton, made a statement on Twitter, and I just reposted that because I felt like her words were uh, more poignant um, than mine, and I couldn't speak eloquently. Um, sure. But I always feel like a peaceful protest is is a proper way to get things done in America as far as how we have oh, things yeah. set up. People should be allowed to do so and should be asked to disperse in a peaceful manner. Um, you know, federal troops should only be brought in if there is a huge, uh, you know, violent reaction to asking to be dispersed. And I, I haven't heard an account yet. It's now almost six months later that the protesters did get violent. All we've, all we've heard right. is that federal troops did. And so I felt the need to speak out for those peaceful protesters who had a right to protest, who felt like they were being oppressed because of a lifestyle um, and a, you know, inerrant race. And um, they had the right to be there and they weren't doing anything to harm anybody else. Um, and so I spoke out against it. And there was a good amount of dialogue under my Facebook page. Um, you know, and a number of people said, well, I don't think clergy should respond to this. Or, you're, or, or some people said, <laughs> basically, you're, you're uh, speaking on the wrong, you know, someone said that you should be, um, you should be speaking out against the, the looters and rioters. And, uh, you know, everybody has their opinion about what's right and wrong. Uh, it's pretty clear, at least to me and to our national bishop at that time, that um, that the oppressed were being oppressed, and this was this was an, a, a system of justice that was injustice that 
um, that needed to be called out. And mm -hmm. I think that's where I mean, pastors literally do have an order. It's in our job description. We have to speak out against that stuff in some way. I did. I don't feel bad at it. Um, I got lambasted by a few folks, probably blocked by a few or, or, or you know, deleted by a few. But I did what I needed to so do. you made I, some enemies. Yeah, I made some enemies, like you said. I, I think I did. What I, I think in the end, I get to heaven, and uh, and and God goes, "You got any questions?" And I said, "How did I do on this one?" I, I'm pretty sure He'll say, "You spoke out for the oppressed." I mean, and 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 we act in that way because we always feel like Jesus um, spoke out for the oppressed. He, you know, He charged us to serve the wid widow, the orphan, and the refugee, and so we look to those people and we try and find ways to support them and. Um, at least, you know, get them into the conversation, get them the resources and human dignity that they deserve just by being born. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think we have, do have a, a, a huge uh, charge to, to speak on these things. But I think there's also a great responsibility to make sure you're at least doing it for the right reasons in a respectful manner. Yes. You're taking in yes. regards the opposite side and you're not, you know, you're not getting into the name calling and the, the belittling that so often happens in our public discourse right now. That's where, you know, the yes. system often breaks down. It's not in two people arguing. I, I, the other, another great quote I heard, and I can't remember where it's from, but they said, um, we were raised not to talk about religion or politics. And now we don't talk about them in a healthy way so much that we get angry and violent with when they do come up. And it's so true. We it's haven't been taught how to, how to talk to people who have differing, um, differing opinions. We haven't, we haven't been taught. We haven't practiced Absolutely. how to have good, healthy conflict and still you know, be friends at the end of the day. So that's, that's interesting because if there's something that I think that Judaism can teach the world, it's exactly that. We have a, oh, so. a, a tradition. Our tradition is called, uh, in Hebrew, the word is machloket. Machloket means uh, a disagreement. Mm -hmm. And all of our traditional literature, when you go back to uh, as far as the, uh, the Mishnah or the Talmud, which are 2,000 years old, the, the entire structure of the, even the very first teaching that we had in those law books is uh, a point of, everyone has a point of dissent. There's always at least one person who brings a position and the other rabbis might not agree with them, right? And, and what you said about having to have this, uh, this conversation and the need for this conversation. Um, I was actually talking to somebody last week and I don't want to get too political, but they were, they were talking about um, uh, issues that they had with the president as of now and, and that they were equating, as a lot of people have done lately, they were equating him to Hitler. And this Trump. person is Jewish, Trump, okay. equating him to, to Hitler. And I said to this person, okay, we, I went step by step. And I just said, tell me how he's Hitler. Yeah, exactly. And like, let me just clarify here. The second you say something that divisive, anybody you're trying to convince is no longer listening to you, right? Uh, I know, I know. It's as convincing as a bumper sticker. No one will listen to that <laughs> and say, oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> Uh, so exactly it's not so what it's, happened it after like, that so i said so i said listen tell me how this person you know tell me how trump is hitler and the, and the person said well there's immigration 
And I said, okay, let's, let's leave off immigration because immigration, every, every country has to have immigration policies, whether or not you agree with the policy, you don't agree with the policies, you know, whatever's happening, that's fine. I understand there are issues there. Now tell me, because um, I said, you don't think in 1930s in Germany, they didn't have immigration policies? Yes, of course they had immigration policies. <laughs> I said, but that's not the issue. So I said, so, so tell me now. And then the person basically got to a point where they said, well, this person, you know, Trump is riling up his fan base, which is, you know, anti, you know, Semitic and, and, and you know, and racist and bigoted. And, and I said, so you're telling me that Hitler didn't kill 13 million people. He just riled up a bunch of people who weren't very nice. Is that what you're telling me Hitler is? <laughs> and the person said, well, now that's a good point. And I said, I said, I, I said, listen, I said, I want to, I said it as respectfully as I could. First, I, then this whole conversation started with exactly what you said. If you're not going to talk to the other side, your country, and I mean America, is in big trouble. Like you're in big trouble if you can't talk to the other side. That's first and foremost. And I said, but you have to understand, we as Jews are sort of the arbiters of the memory of the Holocaust. Mm. And if everything all of a sudden is the Holocaust and is Nazi Germany as in Hitler, then, then we've given fuel to the people who say that it didn't even happen and it wasn't that bad. And I said, you can't equate everything you don't agree with to Nazi Germany. It just is, it's not gonna work to, like you said, it's not gonna work to convince anybody. It's also gonna ruin and desecrate a horrible experience that we don't really wanna remember, but we sort of need to remember. Right, and, so that we don't make the same mistakes or allow you know power to get out of control in the way that it did there. For sure, and I think, and that's one of the things that I love about Judaism is that the whole idea of what we do is that when we sit and learn, we don't sit and learn in a corner by ourselves. We sit and learn with a study partner called a chavruta. And you have to sit there and read the text together. People take turns reading and you read the text and then you have to decide first and foremost, what does the text say? Second of all, then you have to sort of duke out. Do you agree with what the text is saying? Do you agree with this position, that position? Why do you think that's a better position? You have to sort of, and it, and it, and it basically made me, uh, forced me to sort of, like I said, take that um, stance that I, you know, have to take a stance every time I sit down to learn with somebody. I have to take a stance on what I think and, and, and be able to uh, really elucidate what I think. And that's huge. Yeah, I, I think see, the, the role of, of, of other parties, you know, it's like the Bible says, it's like iron sharpening iron in a way. Mm. And I think having people who aren't just yes men or yes women behind you to just agree with you, um, you know, part of where I studied um, is a graduate theological union where there were 12 or 13 seminaries of different denominations. And so I took mm. my Old Testament studies course from a rabbi at the, wow. uh, the Jewish, was, is it a seminary there or is it a, a different name for that? Rabbinical school. Rabbinical, rabbinical school. school. There you go. Yep. It was the rabbinical yeah. school. Um, you know, I took preaching from uh, from a Pentecostal preacher, one of my, one of my preaching wow. classes. So it was a guy who's, you know, falling on his knees and hallelujah and all these other things. And it was great <laughs> because I couldn't say the things as a leader. I couldn't say the things that my, you know, that I have 6 million Lutherans who would say, yes, I agree. I couldn't say those things and mm. not explain what goes on behind them. Cause some of those things just don't sure. make sense to a, a common folk or, or um, folks who aren't Lutherans. And your, um, your uh, what was it called? Havrut? Havruta. 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 It's a great example of, of um, you know, even though you may be the sole appointed leader in some way, 
or the CEO of a company or you know, the, the director of a certain department at your work, whatever it is, um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have good conversation with people about yes. what you're gonna say, about the ideas that you have, um, or even going and Google searching other experts in the field who might have a different opinion and trying to nuance. Sure. You know, I think a lot of times before I post or comment or preach on something, I'm looking at what other preachers have already done. So I may be sure. a little behind the ball as far as getting out on things, but at least I've figured out how I want to say this specifically and, and what are the contradictory points. Yep. Or I have three or four people next to me who have confirmed, hey, that's going to be a tough thing to say. If that's the way you want to say it, you're going to get these people angry, but that's up to you. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think what I liked about what you, you said was that you need to, you know, even as you're sort of the CEO, the leader, to have uh, the conversation with people. But I think maybe even more important than that is that you need people who are going to push back against you. You sure. need people who are going to are going to push you and say, "I don't agree with what you said," and I value in my in my work in my life, I value people who will shoot me straight and tell me, you know what, you're wrong. Because that makes me, like you said, iron on iron. It makes me have to sharpen my position. It makes me have to think about what I just said. And do I really agree with that? And, and, and I, like you said, I'll read a whole bunch of different things. I'll make sure that you know, in my Facebook feed or what, or what I'm reading is not exactly the position that I hold because that makes me have to think even more and produce even more why I hold what I hold. Right. Yeah. If I sit here and surround myself without every yes person and everyone agrees with every, what's it? What are we doing? Yeah. We're not. We're not. No one's growing. No one's learning. One thing I learned I from mean, my good good friend Canute was he will gather people together who are either experts in a field that he wants to do something in, or he, he knows are are have differing opinions. He'll gather them together and he'll say something like this. He'll say, "I have this crazy idea. I got you here today to tell me why it won't work." Yes. Then he'll get the entire group by the end of it to convince him that it's going to work and help him solve all the problems and get involved in, in um, the final solution. <laughs> That's awesome. Because it's genius. I thought you were going to say that by the end, he'd be saying, no, it's not going to work. And it's everyone's like saying, yes, it is yeah. going to work. <laughs> exactly. Like Bugs Bunny when he switches it. Yeah. yeah. No, yes, no, yes, 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 no. Exactly. Exactly. That's funny. Um, Oh, now God. you was, you so found I, you found some uh, interesting uh, leadership lessons from COVID field hospitals. Do you have those in front of you? This was this? yeah. This is I, and we uh, we should put this into the uh, show notes on this. But this is actually this was a great article and and um, it, they gave ten different things which were good leadership lessons to learn. Crisis and the first thing that it said, which I thought was amazing, he said. The person who wrote it said, in small crisis, power moves to the center. So the, the leadership sort of takes over, right? He said, but in a big one, in a big crisis, it moves to the periphery, which means everybody has to get involved and everybody has to be solving the problem in some way or another. Um, in, in our tradition, in the Jewish tradition, we had a thing. It was, a, it was an amazing thing. When we were towards the destruction of the second temple, um, which was 2,000 years ago. We had a thing which was wow, called... Wow, you remember that? I was there. I, oh. That's how Jews actually do... You know, I was in Egypt as well. I don't know if you know that. When we left Egypt, I was there. That's how we have to oh. learn about everything. Everything. That's we why you look there. like a sphinx. That's why I look like a sphinx. I'm getting kind of old in my old age. So the, so the, uh, 
in the destruction of the second temple, we had something at that point, we had a central sort of leadership of rabbis. And they were sort of in this study hall, not really connected to the outside world. Um, and we had a thing called Torah Shabal Peh, which was um, the spoken tradition. We had the written tradition, which was Torah, actual Torah that God you know, gave to Moses and Moses handed on down to the elders and so on down. And we had this thing, which is called Torah Bet Shabal Peh, that, which is the, the spoken Torah, the spoken law, which went in conjunction with it. But it was never supposed to be written down. And so we had this sort of core group of people who would deliberate over it, learn it, study it, refine mm -hmm. it, and it became what is the Mishnah and the Talmud, which is what we have. But then when we had the destruction of the temple, which was our sort of biggest crisis that we ever had, one of the biggest crises we ever had. Yeah, um, I remember how sad you were when that happened. It was really a hard day. So the uh, hard couple days. So the, <laughs> so the, but at that point, the, the, the Torah leadership knew that if they kept it as an oral tradition, it would be lost. So they wrote it down. And that was sort of the way that I think that the, the rabbis said, okay, now we've got to send it to the periphery. We can no longer keep it in the center and we need to let everyone else uh, be a part of it. I now think we're actually doing, you know, like the Big Bang, they say the Big Bang is expanding and then it's going to go back and contract again. Uh -huh. I think that we're actually going through that process in Jewish learning, whereas it went out to the periphery and now everything's online. Everybody can look everything up. Everybody can get an English translation of whatever they need. Yeah, so they feel the like they don't need, everyone gets a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have all these people who are sort of not seeking the leadership of the elders of our community. They're not seeking the rabbis. They're not seeking... Mm -hmm. Rabbis. Um, and actually it says every rabbi, even every, everyone should have their own rabbi and every rabbi needs their own rabbi. You can't be your own sort of, you know, self entity in like a, on an island or something like that. You have to have somebody who you turn to with your questions and helps you sort of refine and know where to head and where to go. And now you've got people who are looking everything up on their own, but they're not learning in the proper channels. And I think that we're going to go back to sort of, that we need to go back a little bit to that centralization so that people help get help from the leadership and the leadership gets help from the people as well. That was one of the things that I thought was really powerful in this. Um, another thing which was awesome was that they said, you have to acknowledge uh, uh, uncertainty. You have to tell everybody what you're not certain about. Mm -hmm. and, and rabbis are often taught too not to make quick decisions. You're always supposed to look things up and make sure that what you're remembering is the correct you know, answer to the question. Talked a lot about Team-based problem solving is one of the things which I thought was great. And I, I'm, the, I'm the king of team-based solve problem solving. I will go to all of my colleagues on almost, uh, almost instantaneously. If somebody asks me a question and I'm not 100% sure about it, I'm going to go not only to the books, I'm going to go to my colleagues, I'm going to talk to them. Um, and like I said, a rabbis, they need rabbis, right? They have to have somebody who they can turn to. Um, now, have you found that as we've gotten older and, and into these more formal roles, that that team-based problem solving happens less? And I say that because I remember being an RA in college mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, we were all just trying to figure it out on our own. So we had to be a team. We had to rely on them. Uh, being an orientation leader like you were, being a, um, right. you know, all those other things. Do you feel like those early leadership roles were more team-based and now it seems to be becoming more insular. I think that where I, I feel like right now, I don't feel as insular as I was then. I think 
there was something in me when I was in college that made me feel like letting people know, right? Talking about that uncertainty in a public setting, turning to somebody for a question was really just showing my own failing and mm. I couldn't do it. I feel like I needed to know everything. I feel like I had to have all the answers. And one of the greatest things that I learned when learning to be a rabbi, they said, it's always okay to say, I don't know, but I'm going to find you an answer. I'm not going to leave you hanging, but I don't, I can't, I can't just spout off an answer right now. And so not only is it okay to turn to the people that you're, you know, sort of helping in the world as sort of the Jewish flock, but also the people that you work with, you can turn to them and say, Hey, you know, I got, I got this question. I I really don't know the answer to, have you dealt with this before? Do you have any thoughts on this? Um, Or even just to turn to somebody and say, here's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like I'm on the right track? I mean, do you feel like, which, which do you feel you were more team-based with now or before? Uh, I feel like now there's, there's a greater need because the, uh, what I'm leading is, is, is bigger and it has more, you know, moving parts. So it's sort of like, I, I think I tried for a while to really do it on my own and not be vulnerable to inviting other people and not, you know, I would do the same thing where I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask questions or tell people I didn't know, but I'd find out. I'd just try and make up an answer because I wanted to, to show people how great I was at being a leader. <laughs> and now I'm like, I've taken so many blows that I think it's like, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know if someone else could help with this. It'd be great. Do we have any, you know, experts in this around? Or- did, you actually, did you actually get people who turned to you and, and you gave an answer and then they came back to you and you, were, you had made a big mistake by giving them that answer? Oh, yeah. I mean, I made a bunch of mistakes. I think that's the other challenge of leadership is you rarely hear about your, you have to be ready to endure sort of rumor and gossip from a third hand party, rather than the person you've wronged coming to you face to face and saying, hey, when you did this, it hurt me in this way, or I think this wasn't the best decision. And this is why. So I think that's, that's the other challenge is you know, what people are saying about you you often have to take with a grain of salt and get to the bottom of. Um, but yeah, I think, I think now I'm definitely more team-based. We actually shifted our, our leadership in this particular congregation to being more uh, collaborative. We have two co-lead pastors now. We have a, um, a lead team of people who are doing most of the decision-making. Um, the, our board of directors, our church council, we call it, um, are you know they have a charge and a focus for them it's not they just hear what the pastors want to do and uh, vote to do it it's they have a, a job description so we're really expanding out this the expectations of leadership so that um, you know and the hard part is we're lowering people's expectations of how often they're going to see the pastor or the pastor is going to be the one to make the decision but we're also expanding the idea that everyone can be involved in serving this common mission. Um, the leader is just right. the one who's often in the, in the spotlight for it. And so the more I can delegate and celebrate other people and the people on my team who did solve the problem, uh, the more I'm finding that the, you know, the team succeeds and wants to succeed because they're being, I guess in a way I, it, it's a bad way to describe it, but it's they're being elevated to that leadership role without without the four years of seminary and the firing squad at the end. And uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's so easy for them. Now, I'll tell you what. One of the things that I feel like is missing in the in the synagogues that we have here in Israel is that 
um, we what what you're talking about happens almost by default because a lot of synagogues don't have rabbis. That's just not a thing. It's not a really you know having a leader a rabbi at the helm of a shul of a synagogue is not the norm in Israel. And they're, they're, we're not really sure why it happened. Some people think it happened because there was a lot of distrust after the Holocaust because the rabbis did not lead and, you know, and help in a proper way. Uh, but, they, but immediately you have everybody in the, in the community doing what needs to be done to make the synagogue function, which is great and amazing. But at the same time, you have a, it's kind of rudderless. You don't have anyone sort of driving for an ultimate goal. You don't have people teaching and, and, and keeping people focused on the right things. I mean, there was a rabbi that, uh, one of the amazing rabbis who, who taught constantly on what's called tzedakah, on doing a, a righteousness and giving and, and, and you know, helping out those who are in need. And fi- one day his congregant walked up to him and said, Rabbi, when are you going to stop teaching us about tzedakah? And he goes, when you finally get it. like if you get it right i'll stop teaching about it but so you have to have that balance like you said you have to have the leadership and the sort of focus and the pie in the sky seeing where you want the 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 community to go where who you want them to be and at the same time you need the community to be you know part and parcel in that in that building of the thing that you're building so i think you're you're right in the right spot that's really inspiring yeah and we've wrestled a lot with and i still wrestle with this how much of the team's input and involvement and how much of the, the population's input and involvement do you take in before there's a decision made, right? So you realize we're yeah. never going to agree 100% on everything. And if we just talk about this, we're going to, until we 100% agree, we'll never come to a conclusion. So sure. how, when, sure. do we, when do we have a sense? And I think that's really the role if you're doing team-based leadership. Um, that's really the role of the leader is to be the one to say, I've heard all these things. What I'm seeing is this. And so it sounds like we should do this in the end and write it out in a clear, concise way. And then saying, how does that feel for everybody? And if people are heard oftentimes, even if they're heard saying this sucks, I don't think this is going to (laughs) work. And they were heard in, you know what I mean? In a respectful way, oftentimes there won't, you know, they're not going to be after the decisions made or after the things launched they're not going to be, you know, vocal and divisive. They'll just kind of be alone for the ride because someone heard what they had to say. Listen, man, I think it's a good, uh, good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good, man. Good chatting today. I could, I could talk about this all day, but um, Hey, if you're listening, you got any ideas for us on um, the responsibility of leadership or things that you're going through, just shoot us in email uh, or a message and uh, we'd love to chat with you more about it but thanks so much for listening everybody tune in next Monday for another You'll Never Believe This Jamie good to see you always good to see you Rob alright man have a good week take care everybody